In the past couple of weeks, attorneys for Governor Eric Greitens asked for his felony invasion of privacy trial to be decided by a judge, not a jury. They also wanted one of Circuit Attorney Kim Gardner's attorneys to be bounced and for the entire case to be thrown out. St. Louis Circuit Judge Rex Burleson gave his answer on Monday, no to all three requests. In a move some found surprising, Burleson ruled that 12 St. Louis residents will decide if Greitens is guilty or not. Greitens' attorney Ed Dowd, though, believes his client will get a fair trial. We're very happy with having a jury and just look forward to a speedy and fair trial, which I know we'll get here. Having a jury decide Greitens' fate is notable for a couple of reasons. St. Louis is one of Missouri's most democratic jurisdictions, so it's possible that people picked for jury duty won't be Greitens' superfans. And St. Louis University law professor Molly Wilson says that people with very different mentalities than a judge will be rendering the ultimate decision. Jurors don't come into the courtroom as blank slates. They come in with ideas and opinions and attitudes and prior experiences. And a lot of that can um, have profound impacts on how they then receive information in the courtroom and interpret it and make decisions. As a deadline for a House committee to issue a report on the governor inches forward, Greitens is releasing radio ads contending that liberals are, quote, hell-bent on stopping his agenda, even though Republicans have been the loudest critics. So on this edition of Politically Speaking, we delve into Burleson's big decisions and zero in on how the judge will affect Greitens' political and legal future. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio today is... Colleague Joe Manis. And... Rachel Lippman. This is the fourth part of our never-ending series on Governor Eric Greitens political and legal odyssey. As we do every week, I turn it over to my esteemed colleague, Rachel Lippman, to say what happened and what did not happen in the in the in the court of law. So the only day that there was really anything going on in court was Monday. And Jason can tell you this because uh, he joined me in the courtroom on Thursday and there was really nothing going on. I, yeah, None of the attorneys were even there. What, what a coincidence that the first time I go to one of these things that literally nothing happens. I mean, they're just going to have to like bring you in as the secret weapon off the bench to just make this thing go away. I guess when you walked in, they're like, oh, forget it. And we're done. We're done. I, I, I am leaving. Legal poison, but continue. <laughs> Anyways, uh, the big decision Monday was Judge Rex Burleson denied a request from the governor's defense team to hear the case from the bench, meaning without a jury. So 12 citizens, uh, registered voters and otherwise eligible for jury service in St. Louis, they will be the ones to decide whether the governor has uh, committed invasion of privacy. And this was a decision that surprised a number of people within the legal arena, uh, former Circuit Attorney Jennifer Joyce was on St. Louis on the Air's legal roundtable earlier this week, and she was asked about whether it was unusual for a judge to deny a request to have a bench trial. Here's what uh, the Democratic official said. It, it is definitely unusual, though. I, In my over two decades as a prosecutor in the city of St. Louis, I cannot recall an instance where a defendant wanted a bench trial and that request was denied. Um, so even though legally um, it's appropriate that the judge has the ability to do that, it's highly unusual. 
Um, and I think it's very interesting, both the fact that the governor wanted a bench trial for reasons that I think Bill touched mm-hmm. on, um, but also the fact that um, the judge is in, insisting that it be a jury trial mm-hmm. in the city of St. Louis. I think that's very interesting, and I've been thinking about what could uh, Judge Burleson possibly be trying to accomplish with that because it is so unusual. And uh, Jennifer Joyce wasn't the only person who is dis- who is surprised by this decision. Rachel sent me a bunch of tweets from people who have been following this case saying, well, they thought that if somebody asked for a bench trial, that they get it automatically. That's clearly not the case because, as as Joyce alluded to, it's up to a judge to say that's okay. Mm-hmm. But uh, what was kind of your, your snap? non-lawyerly reaction when this happened. I mean, there's there's a couple of things potentially at work here. Um, and actually, in that legal roundtable, some of the other panelists, uh, Bill Freivogel, who you heard Miss Joyce mention, and, and Mark Smith, who's here at Washington University, were talking about the fact that the Jason Stockley case was a bench trial. And a lot of people think that that was sort of done to really protect the defendant from maybe facing, who in this case was a police officer who had shot and killed someone, from, you know, maybe uh, facing a jury of his peers. And maybe Burleson didn't want the responsibility in this time against an elected official said uh, citizens need to make this decision. And he's kind of, you know, allowed a lot of things to just sort of go and and stay on this course. You know, this is what we've set down. This is what we're going to do. And his point was, you know, yes, you have requested it. But in this case, I think that it is up to the public to make this decision as it's within his his right to do. Well, I think Burleson may have been, I'm just speculating, may have been reacting to, A, all the heat that the judge in the Stockley case took, and but B, also, the Greitens people already, and we're segueing into this, have been jabbing at Burleson because um, he was appointed to the bench by the previous governor, Jay Nixon, who's a Democrat. So he may be thinking in his mind, well, they're hitting, they're already hitting me, accusing me of not being... Um, uh, uh, neutral. And if it's just a bench trial, then whatever decision I make, I'm going to be, if if they don't like it, they're going to be slamming him. They're going to try to make it more political. So he may have decided, hey, no, I'm going to have a jury deal with it and let them uh, react to whatever the jury decides. And I spoke to a, a law professor at Washington University as well, Dan Epps, who brought up that, you know, juries are, yes, meant to protect the defendant, but they're also meant to be the voice of the community in a trial. In cases involving misconduct by government officials, I think there might be especially strong reasons why we might think that someone, a, a, a fact finder who's not part of the government should be making the factual determination. Uh, So in cases involving uh, misconduct by police officers, I think that there are good arguments that that bench trials really don't represent the community's interests. Uh, This is, you know, uh, the Greitens case is another case involving, you know, misconduct by an officer of the government, but not necessarily in the, you know, not in the capacity, in in that capacity, right? Um, And it raises some very, very hard questions about, about, you know, fairness to the defendant, 
but also the community's right of representation. And those things are very much in tension, I think, in a lot of these cases. And it may have been that Judge Burleson decided that, you know, in this case, um, I'm going to exercise my right to have the community be the voice in this trial. There's a number of different reasons he didn't explain why he did it, other than to say that there are procedures in place to handle evidentiary issues, issues of the law, explaining exactly what it is. And uh, it wasn't like a written order that says these are my reasons behind it. It was just a jury trial, the waiver of the jury trial. So a bench trial request has been denied. Uh, One of the reasons why I think outside observers found the decision notable is a a point that the aforementioned Bill Freivogel made on St. Louis on the Air. For full disclosure, Bill Freivogel used to work. Did he used to work with us at the Beacon, at least on some level? Well, just Bill um, was head of the J School for a while. Um, in uh, at um, Carbondale. Carbondale. Carbondale, and also he's a lawyer, mm-hmm. and he's also the husband of Margie Freivogel, who was the founder of St. Louis Beacon. And he's written a lot journalist. of like sort of legal commentary articles around yes. a lot of the stuff with the grand jury in the in the Ferguson case. This so. this is a point that he made that I found particularly interesting that I want to use as a jumping off point for the next point in our discussion, so to speak. I think it's a serious consequence that uh, it'll be a jury trial instead of a bench trial, because I think that he's, he's most likely to end up with a jury of people who voted against him. Um, you know, that sh- the, uh, but, but I think the judge was uh, certainly, you know, under the uh, state constitution, uh, per- a person can ask for a bench trial, uh, but doesn't have a right to a bench trial, and it has to be with the assent uh, of the judge and the, I think, Burleson properly thought this should be, a, the, the people should, people in the form of a, of a jury should be making the decision. Now, I, both Rachel and I live in the city of St. Louis, mm-hmm. and what uh, Bill was talking about is the fact that it is one of the most democratic jurisdictions in the state, maybe rivaled by Kansas City, but it, it usually votes between like 70 and 80 percent for Democratic statewide 70 candidates. to 90 percent. Sometimes it Depends 90%. on the candidate, for sure. But I, I think, though, while there certainly are a lot of people that vote for Democratic candidates, I think just that statistic alone doesn't necessarily tell the whole story. And, and Joe, I think, is about to chime in about, about why that's the case. <laughs> yeah, well, because, frankly, A, this is a personal matter that Greitens um, is being you know accused of. Uh, taking a photo of a semi-nude woman who was then his mistress uh, while she was taped to an exercise machine. Yeah, I know, in his basement. So my point being is that while some people assume that the Democrats are the one hounding him on this, actually most of his most vocal critics are Republicans. Which we'll get to later in the show. So, But my point is, putting this in context, is that even if you have a Democratic-leaning jury, let's say, many of them, Democrats often tend to be a little more, um, I mean, as a group, sometimes tend to be a bit more forgiving or not really as uh, focused on personal behavior as on policy issues. And sometimes with Republicans, it's the opposite, where they're more uh, concerned about a candidate's personal uh, actions than their policies. So when you say personal actions, you mean extramarital affairs. That's well, what you're trying to say. Well, not just that. <laughs> personal lives, period. Pers- personal lives. I, I want to be clear. I, I don't want to use euphemisms, but and, continue. And, 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 I, I, think, I think personal lives is, <laughs> is 
kind of a broader term. Yes, in this context, it is extramarital affair. It is, you know, taping someone up in, uh, in engaging in, in sexual activity with them. But I think it also applies to other, you know, personal life, uh, same-sex relationships, for example. Right. I, I, I don't think it's necessarily euphemistic. And, of course, I'm probably overly generalizing, and I can have listeners say, oh, you know, but, but I'm still, I'm just saying as a group, and the fact that the, his most ardent critics have been Republicans. Many Democrats uh, who are in office, I can vouch for this, tell me privately as well as publicly, they just assume Greitens hang around. They would rather deal with Greitens in office than with uh, potentially Lieutenant Governor Mike Parson for various reasons, some policy level, some political level, which we've talked about before. So my point is that I think it's uh, to assume that a jury from the city of St. Louis would not be friendly to his predicament, I think could be very wrong. I mean, it only takes one to spoil, quote unquote, a jury. It has to, uh, a criminal charge has to be unanimously found guilty. So if there is one person who is like, you know what, I don't believe beyond a reasonable doubt that everything outlined in the state statute has happened, then likely the governor is going to be found not guilty. Also, there's something to consider, too. There's been some conversation. There hasn't been any real kind of like briefing on it about potentially sequestering this jury to try and reduce the amount of exposure to media coverage and interpretation of it during the trial. And that could really change the jury pool. If you are a single parent caring for your children um, don't have a lot of family support in the area to help you out with that. If you are, you know, caring for elderly parents, um, maybe trying to work at night to get some money to be able to just, you know, live and survive in the city, that could really drastically change the jury pool away from people. It'll just dra- it could just drastically change the jury pool. And, and there's another reason why I think that the you know 80% democratic vote therefore you can't have a fair jury pool is a bit simplistic it, it really depends on where the people in this jury live mm-hmm. i mean and i'm not just talking about the reality that most african americans in the city live north of delmar and most white people live south of delmar it's that there are pockets of the city where there are Democrats who are also opposed to abortion rights, are very much opposed to this police accountability movement that's come in after Jason Stockley or Ferguson. I can't tell you how many times I've run through St. Louis Hills and seen, you know, Blue Lives Matter signs there or, or that flag with the, the blue stripe in it or, or, or whatever it is. And I, I guarantee you most of those people voted in the Democratic primary for Democratic candidates. Because there's no real solid GOP and option they, in the city. And they want to have a voice. But often in, in general elections, especially like a presidential contest They'll or, probably vote in or, the- or, uh, or on the statewide, they split their tickets. They, they most likely do. So, But we won't know that sort of thing because I very much doubt we're going to get any location information about the jury. But if you get a skilled attorney doing the questioning, you can kind of glean a little bit of information about kind of who some of these people are and, and, you know, where they might be living, what some of their political views are. It's not going to be as blatant as, you know, who did you vote for in the GOP or the primary. But, you know, there's ways of good attorneys kind of getting at this. I do want to move back a little bit to uh, Burleson. Burleson, before he was appointed to the bench, 
was a longtime aide to Governor Jane Nixon. I think he ran his St. Louis office while he was while he He was governor. Uh I'm not really sure what he did while while Nixon was attorney general, but he worked with that office too. I think. Yeah. Yes, he did. He I, ran the St. Louis office here for that. I, I, think, I believe well. it it was a similar job. I actually remember talking with him on the phone um, really early in Nixon's administration, kind of about whether he was going to move on from the attorney general's office to Nixon's office. Yeah, I dealt with him a lot before he became a judge. I think that there are some people, and by some people, I mean. Tony Messenger of the Post-Dispatch, because I don't want to be euphemistic, I want to lay it out there, who have questioned whether Burleson can be impartial in this case, because Nixon now works for the same law firm that is representing Greitens. I've heard this argument, too, that since, like, Danforth is also part of that law firm, that he's, like, a gigantic hypocrite. But, you know, and Joe, Joe and I have talked about Danforth at length offline. I'm not the biggest Danforth super fan there is, but I've also found that that's kind of an unfair criticism that just because there are attorneys in the same firm representing something doesn't necessarily mean that you should impugn the motives or integrity of other people in that oh, firm. Oh, sure, because a lot of these firms are really large. They have lots of lots of lawyers. I said both of my kids are lawyers, so I get... I hear about this. So I think that is kind of uh, an excuse that some are use, using. And as I mentioned before, it's not – I think this whole case is not as political as far as reaction as some people um, contend. I think uh, some people ignore the fact that most of the governor's sharpest critics are fellow Republicans mm-hmm. for, for a number of reasons, which we won't go into. But – but but and and we've said this repeatedly, and I just want to say it again. Mm. Well, and I mean, as and Joe, we were talking a little. You were talking a little bit offline that there's still a lot of judges on the bench who were appointed by Governor Matt Blunt. So it's kind of a luck of the draw sort of thing. You end up with the judge that. It, this case is assigned to. In this case, Judge Burleson believed that his courtroom was the best place for it to remain. He is technically the assignment judge now, which means he handles a lot of pre-trial motions on stuff, but will um, hand trials to other judges. And he decided that, you know, I, I know the players. I have experience with these kind of big uh, politically charged, publicly facing cases, I'm going to keep this in my courtroom. So it really is sort of luck of the draw as to which judge you get. And, and at the risk of getting into whataboutism, Judge Burleson was also the judge during the Bruce Franks Penny Hubbard case. Yeah. And Joe, you and I know that Governor Nixon was probably not happy with Penny Hubbard when she overrode a number of his vetoes. They were not political friends. And I don't think Nixon really hid the fact that was the case. I never heard once from anybody questioning Burleson's political independence in that case. For our listeners, I just briefly, I mean, yeah, Penny Hubbard and Bruce Franks were fighting over a statehouse seat. Yeah. And she was the incumbent, and there was accusations of uh, vote fraud regarding the absentees. But, and, of course, Bruce Franks eventually, eventually it ended up with Bruce Franks having the seat. But just so people understand the backdrop of this. But still, the point is well taken. That I mean, no one was blasting Burleson then. Probably because, again, they liked the outcome. They, well, they did like Bruce Franks and they didn't like Penny Hubbard. And, and I, don't, I don't know what is the, the motivation behind this, but St. Louis judges, while they are appointed by governors and oftentimes 
the judges end up being longtime staffers of the governor. And I don't, I don't uh, whoever th- was governor. Whoever was governor. I mean, John Ashcroft. Jan Ashcroft did the same thing. Yes. It is still through the nonpartisan court plan where they have to be interviewed by a panel. They have to beat out a number of other people. And I, I just haven't really gotten a sense that there's there's huge gaping problems in Burleson's competency in, in, in trying this case. And there, honestly, been, there have not been previous accusations. And I'm honestly, sorry. if you got a judge who Blunt had appointed, you'd probably be hearing about it from, you know, supporters of the other side saying, you know, like he's not going to be fair because he's Republican appointed and he's going to be doing all of these rulings in favor of the governor. So really, honestly, like none of these judges can win. And I think the fact that Governor Nixon is belonging to a firm, like you mentioned, that um, Ed Dowd and Jim Bennett are also employed by is kind of like he's not working on the case. Yeah, so yeah and Dowd's a Democrat. We could talk about this all day. But <laughs> I, I do want to move into kind of political land, not to belabor <laughs> Joe's point that she's As been making, we <laughs> she, she, that she's been making throughout most of the show. Political? But, um, you know, the governor's campaign, and it's the actual campaign. It's not a new Missouri. It's not a nonprofit group where you can't see the donors released a a radio ad script. And I'm reading this from another reporter's Twitter because I asked for the script and I didn't get a response. Um, Is this going to be a dramatic reading, Jason? Should it be? (laughs) Yeah, go ahead. Okay. (laughs) Male voice. Eric Greitens is on a conservative mission fighting for Missouri's hardworking families. Working has an apostrophe there. Female voice. And I'm not going to pretend to do a female voice because... I would fail. (laughs) As a strong pro-life champion, Governor Greitens worked with the legislature to protect Missouri's most vulnerable, signing one of the strongest pro-life reforms in America. It kind of goes on just listing out his accomplishments. And then a male voice says, liberals are hell bent on stopping his conservative reforms. Even Satan's own lawyers from the Satanic Temple are suing Greitens. But they forget who they're dealing with. Female voice a Navy SEAL and conservative warrior who can take their hits and keep on fighting. Eric Greitens is on a conservative mission for Missouri, and he won't stop until the mission is complete. Okay, I'm not... The I'm mission now, continues. I'm now sitting here with, like, visions of, like, you know, we're on a mission from God Blues Brothers thing here. I do want to correct... I mean, I'm sure there's plenty of things to fact check in that ad, but the Satanic Temple case that is mentioned, this is not what you think of as Satanism. They use that name, I think, to be controversial, but it is more of sort of a action, um, a sort of political action, civic-minded, believe-in-science, social justice organization kind of thing. And the case they're talking about there is a woman who uh, subscribes to their beliefs wanted to have an abortion without uh, listening to the informed consent material. There's a reason I'm mentioning this, because this is this doesn't mention the governor's affair or his indictment at all. But, but Joe... You and I have been following gubernatorial politics for a long time. You've been doing it since before I was born, as you like to say. (laughs) But governors don't release radio ads in year 1.5 of their term. He's clearly doing this because this entire situation has caused a big political headache, especially with Republicans possibly mulling over impeachment with the, the, the House committee still deciding what they want to do. And it kind of continues this 
narrative that you've mentioned several times on this show that the Greens people believe that the liberals are the people kind of gnawing at his heels. And I don't think they really believe that. I, OK, this ad is not aimed at the liberals. This ad is named at conservatives. This ad is aimed at reminding conservatives, at some of whom have defected. There have been some high-profile, um, not just legislators, but backers who I know. I won't get into the names. But my point is, he's had a lot of defections of some of his most loyal supporters. They were all conservative Republicans. What this ad is aimed at is reminding Republicans of what he sees at his achievements and what he sees as why they need to stick with him. That he's throwing in the liberal stuff that's just kind of red meat. They don't believe—I mean, they know, it's not the they, Democrats who are going to be impeaching him. If he gets impeached, it's going to be the Republicans. The Republicans have more than a two-third majority in each chamber. I don't know that that doesn't prove that they don't believe that it's all part of, like, a liberal a liberal plan or plot. But I get I take your point. Well, without disclosing my suspicions directly, <laughs> I am going to use euphemistic uh, terms here. I think it is far more likely that the people that started this whole thing are actually Republicans and Republican-leading interest groups yes. than George Soros. Yes. Okay. Said, it's just This is just red meat thrown out telling conservatives, you really need to stick with me. This is a message with them. Stick with me. Don't jump off the ship. But that's not the only ad that aired this week. We've talked a lot about on the show the effect of this entire situation on the highly watched U.S. Senate race between possibly Josh Hawley and Claire McCaskill. I say possibly because he has to get through a 11-way GOP <laughs> primary before that occurs. Although chances are he'll he'll do fine. But, uh, and technically McCaskill has a primary opponent too as well. Actually, six. actually six, including <laughs> okay. our good friend Leonard Steinman. Steinman! <laughs> yeah, but this situation is actually getting entangled in the Democratic primary for county executive. And this was actually very predictable. The backstory is that Steve Stanger, the incumbent, is running against Mark Montavani, who is a fairly wealthy businessman who's also running in the Democratic primary. And Montavani donated about $20,000 to Eric Greitens before he jumped in this primary. And he also had a lot of Twitters in favor of Greitens. So Stinger's message for tweets, months. Joe? Tweets, Tweets, Joe? tweets, tweets. Okay, I'm showing my age here. I mean, Stinger for months has been saying, you know, Montevani is really a Republican. So that's kind of the backdrop to this. And, and this is what he actually told you during an interview before the Adam about to play dropped onto St. Louis area televisions. You know, when you have a Democratic primary and you have one of the one of the uh, candidates in that primary who was one of the largest donors for the sitting Republican governor um, who has instituted right to work in the state and who's done a whole host of other things that I think are offensive to Democrats, um, you know, I think it, 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 it makes for a, a very interesting dynamic. Now, I just want to jump in here a little bit without trying to needle Stanger too much. Montavani is not one of Greitens' biggest donors. Like, Joe and I both know that there were people that gave far more than $20,000 to Yeah, him. but still, but 20000 is not a tiny sum. But that was what I was about to say. It's not like Montavani gave, like, $25 and they're, they're trying to blow it out of proportion. 
I, I don't have $20,000 to spend on a political candidate. It's a significant amount of money. And it leaves people like Montevani vulnerable to ads like this. If you're a Democrat and you've never heard of Mark Montevani before, here's why. Mark Montevani was one of Eric Greiden's biggest supporters. Mark Montevani gave Eric Greiden's over $20,000 for his gubernatorial campaign. Montevani tweeted support for Greiden's 10 times for his conservative values. There, there's other backstories to this, too. Montevani doesn't have a voting record, so they have to look at, like, either his prior statements or social media activity or his donations in order to, you know, attack him. But when I saw this ad, and I, I don't usually reveal this, but since he didn't say this was off the record, Stanger directly texted me this ad and said, Jason, look at this ad, because he was so excited about it. Oh, yeah. No. Yeah, he, he is. He he was excited about it because taking away the fact that the governor's actions don't have a huge amount to do with St. Louis County government in a Democratic primary, this type of thing could be pretty effective. I mean, I, I see I definitely see why he's doing it. You tie him to a governor who by all accounts, is pretty unpopular among, you know, Democrats and Republicans, as Joe likes to to point out. And anything you can do to call into question the Democratic bona fides of your candidate certainly, you know, works. Um, I, I, I haven't seen it, so couldn't tell you. And I don't follow the St. Louis County politics nearly as, as closely as you do. But again, with all the context that you, context that you guys like to, to provide and are very good at providing, as you guys mentioned, this isn't really surprising at all. Well, what's surprising is that he's doing it so early. Mm-hmm. That Stanger's, I mean, it, traditionally in a primary like this, it would be a few months later from now when they'd start doing all this. I think Stanger's doing it in part, in my opinion, because he has his own problems with the Democratic base in St. Louis County, mm-hmm. especially um, African-American Democrats, uh, going all the way back to 2014 when he challenged then-County Executive Charlie Dooley and knocked him off in a primary. So from the way Stinger's supporters see it is that some of fellow Democrats who don't like him are trying to do to him what he did to Dooley. But... And, and Montavani in this case, is the agent. So basically, Montavani is Stanger, and Stanger is Dooley. Yeah, but the difference is Montavani doesn't have a, uh, a governmental record. I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm just saying what is. Montavani is a businessman. So from that's but if you look lately, last couple of years, voters have often been. Uh, you know, they kind of like outsiders. They got Trump, and that's how we got And they Greitens. got Eric Greitens, yeah. too, Rachel. Well, and also I think, too, it's top of mind right now. I mean, people are talking about this. We're doing weekly podcasts on it. Stations are focusing on this. You start running it later after the trial is over, and if he's either, you know, can it, may, it would work if he was um, found guilty— of the crime, uh, convicted of invasion of privacy in terms of, you know, it's a disgraced governor and he donated. But if he is found not guilty and kind of, you know, gets to not fade off into the sunset but clear his name, he becomes less controversial in a sense to to tie him to after the fact. Right now, people are talking about Eric Greitens. He's everywhere. Uh, Josh Hawley got asked about it on national television last night. And I will just mention that uh, Montavani released a response ad where he tried to explain his Democratic uh, bona fides, 
did not mention his donations to Greitens, though I know that he has spoken, I guess, publicly about that and has disassociated himself with them. I, I know, though, that Stanger is very excited to use this attack. I think part of his message, and this is kind of counter to what Greitens is doing in this radio ad, kind of this ad is aimed at fellow Democrats saying, look, you may not like me, but at least I'm a real Democrat. Well, I will just say, though, and this one, this may be where Stinger has a, has a pretty legitimate point. It was not a secret that Greitens was in favor of right to work, which is shorthand proponents use to describe a, a law that bans unions and employers from requiring workers to pay dues. And I, I and given that there that the county executive's role really does have a lot to do with interacting with labor unions because oftentimes they get fairly lucrative county contracts. Right. I, I think that that is actually one instance where Stanger could be like, "Well, I'm the super pro labor guy, and you're not. And if you elect this not super pro labor guy, the labor unions that depend on some of these contracts may not." Get as get as good of a shake as they did uh, under under me, and that's why I think labor is probably going to be supporting Stanger a hundred percent. Oh here. yeah, and I think and, and Jason and I have talked about this a gazillion times that in the 2016 campaign, for whatever reason, even though Greitens made clear that he supported right to work, a lot of labor rank and file didn't necessarily hear that message. I mean, some labor leaders have privately acknowledged that a decent percentage of their workers are retirees especially outstate, may have supported him as opposed to Democrat Chris Coster, who spoke at labor rallies, who reinforced his opposition about right to work, but never, I don't think he used it in any of his TV spots yes. or did anything to really hammer it home. Yes. And, and, we, we'll, you, and I still am shocked by that. And we talked about that in a previous show. I, I think that if Coster had spent four or five million dollars just on ads saying, I will veto right to work, I don't know if he would have won, but I think that he would have lost by one or two percentage points. And I think that he would be campaigning for governor right now instead of working at Centene. Making a lot of money. But but frankly, (laughs) I haven't talked to the former attorney general, but I think that he's probably happy he is out of this mess. On that note, I just want to thank both of you and all of our listeners uh, for all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Follow Rachel at... At R. Lipman, two P's, two N's. Follow Joe at... Jay Manis. It's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. We'll be back next time. Until then, so long.